0: Well, it is my joy to finally be with you, uh, to be here, uh, to get to bring you the Word of God this morning. What a blessing that is! Uh, You know, I've been following along in their series on how the coming of Christ, how the incarnation of Christ, shapes our identity. You know, I've been listening and 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 thinking about it, and and whenever I share from the Word of God, I, I want it to be personal. So I started to think how how do how am I confronted as I come to this, as I come to this idea of like the arrival of Jesus into this world? How does it challenge me personally? And uh, being a good product of the Northeastern United States, I'm a Philadelphia native. I am a little bit of an achiever by nature. I'm a little bit of a try hard. And uh, it's beaten into us up there. And uh, and so I init- so immediately, Um, When I thought about this series, I thought about how much of my identity is tied up in success and failure, in how I feel about myself and how other people feel about me. And I remember particularly um, one story in my life, uh, one moment, so to speak, in my life where that really became real to me. Um, It was towards the end of my time in college, uh, and what I really wanted so badly was to get accepted into a PhD program so I could have those nice little letters at the end of my name. I know it sounds like a really lame dream now but at the time I just wanted to be that guy who when somebody said is there a doctor in the house I could say yes but not that kind <laughs> and everybody would look at me and be annoyed but also after like well he did that's is, that is pretty cool And I remember um, I was always uh, pretty good at school. And my advisor started to tell me of all these wonderful places I could go and I could do this. And so believing all the things that as a millennial I'd ingested, that I I could be anything I wanted, I only applied for the best history programs. And in one week in March 2007, I watched four letters come in and each say no. Not good enough. And I was shattered. Utterly shattered. In a week, in the span of opening four paper letters, who I thought I was changed completely. Without exaggeration, I would say it took me five years to recover from that. Five years. And so it's with that in mind that the cold truth that was taught to me in mind about how unstable an identity rooted in our own success and and achievement is that I come to this today and I want to share with you from the Word of God today. So would would you turn with me to Luke chapter 2? We're going to read about the night of Jesus' birth. We are going to go to the moment, this this beautiful moment, where the incarnation is announced and made real. So if you would read along with me from Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 20 verses here. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping their watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, that I will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. Heavenly Father, uh, as we read about this momentous day, this beautiful day, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts That we would receive the instruction of your spirit. That though we trod familiar ground, that you would break up the the hardened parts of our heart. That we would be brought near to you through through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at this passage, uh, it is familiar. Uh, Even if you are new to faith, there is a chance, there is a good chance that you have heard this, you have seen this in some manner. At the very least, you have seen a nativity scene depicting some of these images. And so as we start looking at this passage, um, you know, I'm going to let you know right now, there, there's no big reveal coming. There's no big switch where I'm like, oh, you didn't know this. But we need to go through this because there's things in here that we need to hear Regularly. And to start with, I'm going to begin right at a part that we often jump over. This little bit. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The beginning of Jesus' life on earth is marked by his family being forcibly moved. Forcibly ordered around by an occupying power, an unjust occupying power, by the way, who is moving them to count them. And you might hear census, and you know, I don't know, we don't have a bad, in America, we don't have a bad relationship with the census, you know, it kind of helps us count everybody and we know where the votes go and we know, you know, the census is for our own good. That is not what is going on here. There's a reason Rome is counting the people. It's the money. It's money and power. They need to know who they need to subjugate and how much money they can get out of them. The beginning of Jesus' birth story is someone far away with power over him making his family do this cross-national journey, a deeply inconvenient thing to do, an expensive thing to do. A hard thing to do. From the get go, we see that Jesus is born into submission. He is born into a state where he is subject to somebody else's whims, somebody else's power. And we don't really like that, do we? That's not, that's not a desirable state for us. Uh, you know, I, I started with a, with a school analogy, so maybe I'll stay there. Uh, my least favorite part about school was always group projects. For this precise reason, I hated being subject to somebody else. I still remember with a certain, I think the word is bitterness, uh, one group project from high school, from Spanish class, where we needed to get together and prepare this like Spanish conversation about art, you know, the sort of random things that are group projects. And there was just one guy in our group who was just like never available to get together. And I'm sitting there on a B minus in Spanish just thinking, this guy's going to ruin it for me. And and he came from a Spanish-speaking family. So I was like, what is he even doing here? What's going on? Why is this happening to me? I always wanted to parcel these things up. Like If I do my part, I'm safe. I hated being bound to another's choices. I don't think I'm alone in this. I don't think I'm alone in this at all. I think we see this uh, particularly prevailing in our culture, in in our marriages. You know, we, we... you know, in counseling, you know, I, I work with young people. I've worked with youth, in youth ministry. i worked in college ministry. And as I talk to people about marriage, how often they think it is this transactional thing where if I do my part of it and they do their part of it, we'll each come halfway and meet in the middle and those times that inevitably arise in a relationship where you are called to be one, where you have to rely on the other person, or for a long period you find the other person wholly reliant on you, bitterness wells up in your heart. When the decisions have to be made for the family that aren't just for you, suddenly something comes between the two of you. We hate being bound to each other. We hate it. So much of our identity rests, and I would say precariously, precariously rests, on the idea that we have agency, you know? That we have the ability to, like, to, to shape what comes next. And we fear those moments when we are in someone else's power. As, as I, as I this, this time of year at VCU, I start to talk with some of my seniors who are graduating, and I love this part of the conversation. There's a way that the Lord is redeeming some of the bad mis- decisions I made and getting to be there and counsel students here. But it is sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by how much agency some of my students actually think that they have in the next step. Suddenly all their, all their possible decisions, they're the decider in. It's like, well, I could get this internship on Capitol Hill or I could take this job or I could go into this industry. Or I could get this degree. As if it's this single track that they can just check and select. As if circumstances can't change or if they're not subject to the cruel whims of an admission board. You know, an intern coordinator. There's this beautiful thing about seeing Christ. The Son of God, born here at this time, in this place. If you are not familiar, Roman-occupied Israel-Palestine was one of the most violent places of the Roman Empire. Constant uprising, constant fighting, constant military, you know, violent reprisals. That Christ should be born here and lest we talk ourselves into a very American rags-to-riches story for Jesus, let us remember that Christ is both born under Roman rule and crucified under Roman rule. We see that from birth to death, that even though he is subject to this power, he is not defined by it. That, even though in his life and ministry he says, Give to Caesar what is Caesar, he is not defined by Caesar. Though it would seem on the surface that Augustus has all the power here, that power does not define who Christ is. That's hard for us to hear. That's different than our relationship with power. But as we keep moving through here, that's not the only thing that pushes back on our our longing for agency, for control of our fate. I mean, growing up uh, with nativity scenes, with pictures of the birth, as we move on in this passage, uh, we see, if, if you imagine sort of the picturesque nativity scene, I think we picture something very sanitized, compared to what this is actually describing. I think it required me having a couple children and being in the room for it to really grasp the fullness of the experience of having a baby, at what a baby having a baby in a barn might look like. What laying a newborn child down in a pile of hay, the sensory experience that would be you know, my wife loves Christmas decorating. We have nativity things all over the house. You know, I was looking at them as I was preparing for this to see if any of them had a, a more rugged appearance of the barn, of the, of the sediment. And, and they're, they're uniformly, fairly sterile depictions of this scene. Um, but think, think upon how that scene must have felt What it must have been like to be Mary and Joseph. Where the circumstances of this child coming into the world are filled with animals, their their filth. The best, softest place you have to lay down your newborn baby child is a pile of animal feed. What is the emotion that that stirs up? Parents, what is the emotion that that would stir up in you? For me, I immediately feel the well of shame that must have been a part of that. Andrew talked a little bit about this passage last week, and he talked about how the fact that, like, notice that they're returning to his ancestral home and there's nowhere for them to be. No one's putting them up. Think about the circumstances that Jesus is born into. Think about just the visceral place where he was. I, I, have, I have nothing that I would dare offer as a one-to-one comparison to that. But I do remember as a child, um, growing up in Philadelphia, my father worked in the arts community. And so some of the wealthy donors to his opera school that he worked at got my brother and I out of uh, the rough-and-tumble school that we were assigned to in the city and into what is perhaps the fanciest elementary school in all of Philadelphia. People who owned sports teams sent their children and grandchildren there. And I would go over to their houses in the main line, which is the rural estates of the Philadelphia elite. I would see their pools and their game rooms, and I was convinced I lived in the height of poverty. <laughs> my, I lived in this, and I, honestly, now, I'm like, I think that house is bigger than my house. But it's like this little twin house on a very steep street near, you know, in, in Philadelphia. But inevitably, my friends were like, oh, we should, let me come over your house, Pete. I was, like, I was embarrassed. I was like, okay. We don't have, we don't have w- even one pool, let alone two. Uh, <laughs> all right, come on over. Sure, and the entire times my friends would be at my house, I would feel the weight of the difference between the place I lived and the place they lived. And the funny thing is, if I had just gone to my neighborhood school, the roles would be very much reversed. The circumstances would be reversed. But that's the life I grew up in, and that's the feeling that feels familiar to me, that, that, that wells up when I think about Mary and Joseph. And where does that come from? Where does that come from in us? Because I'm just a child. It's not like I was paying the mortgage on that house. That's not legal. My children didn't choose to move from a fancy, nice suburb of Philadelphia to a neighborhood just north of VCU. It's a little rough. Mostly college students. They didn't do that themselves. And yet we feel that. Where does that come from? I would argue that when we value and maybe even worship our own ability to make and define ourselves, to achieve our way to a sense of self, when we make that our framework for viewing the world, our circumstances feel like judgments on our success or failure. I know this feeling, no matter how long I spend in the Word, no matter how long I do this, is still alive in me. Because as I imagined what I would, how I would react if I read this story happening now, what came up out of me is like, how could they find themselves in that place? Nine months pregnant, why don't you know that you why don't how could you not know that you need a place to be? (sighs) The judgment comes up in me. And we can we can we can we can widen that out. How many news stories, how many horrible things do we hear that we justify? I saw people doing it last night with the tornadoes. Like, I can't believe people live there. We're making comments on how they voted or what choices they made. Value judgments from safely away in our comfortable places. Our comfortable circumstances insulating us. Helping us to feel right and righteous about our choices. And we might stay there and we might... Look at this, and we might linger on the fact that, you know, the goth, you know this reputation that follows Jesus' whole life, it's noteworthy if you look in the book of Mark when he goes home, they're like, isn't that Mary's son? Not Joseph's son. Not God's son. These little reputations that follow Jesus. We could hang out there if it weren't for the second half of this passage. We could sit there just simply in judgment and sort of like, well, I don't know how this happened. Was this a mistake? Are you sure? Outside of this absurd finale to this story, the angels arrive in full chorus and proclaim to a hillside of shepherds, glory to God, come see this amazing thing that's been done. She, Andrew pointed this out this week, and I'm going to point it out again. Shepherds are not the people you want. It's already bad. The circumstances are bad. You've had a baby. It is, in a, it is probably still sticky in some hay. It is gross. Everything is gross. And in arrive, men who live and work outside all the time, men who can't get any indoor gainful employment, <laughs> men whose testimony is not trusted in court, <laughs> There's a part of me that's like, "What are these angels doing? These guys? The extravagance of it almost challenges my like very like Puritan upbringing heart. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a lot of that's a lot of celebration for these guys. I could have just sent one angel. It's a little decadent. <laughs> Was this the best use of that money? No, I mean. <laughs> The, it, it, it remains in this idea, this, this, this ideology of our, of our agency, this, this holding up of our, of our own voices and our, and our successes as special. That really does allow us uh, for judgment on others. It allows me to, you know, it's that, it's that thing that wells up and it's like, mm, that's a little much. You're, you're staying there, but you got a whole angel choir? Um, I remember buying my first car. Uh, I think I was 17, about to turn 18. Saved up for it. You know. I had like $4,000. This back when you could buy a for car for $4,000. Um, and I had a couple choices on the lot. And there was this really practical Mazda protege. And there was this sick Toyota Tercel. It was a hot hatch. The thing was just dangerous. And I would say a significant portion of my motivation for choosing that protege was to judge the people who would choose the Tercel. That's a really terrible teenage personality to have, sorry. I'm sorry I come to you with that. That's a confession, because that Tercel would have been way cooler. (laughs) But I got that practical, easy to repair. I never dropped a turbo in it or anything. Just drove it faithfully and reliably, a little fast sometimes. And a portion of that was so I could look in judgment on people like my brother who bought a Honda Prelude that you had to fall into because it was so low in the ground. So I could think like I'm someone who makes good decisions. I don't make bad decisions. I'm a teenager who makes good decisions. That's the power that we think is afforded to us. That's what... That's the benefit we associate with us. I have proven my right thinking, my right living, and it must be acknowledged. But the angels in this story leave no doubt. Because they don't arrive in the practical, you know, you know, middle-class neighborhood of Bethlehem. They arrive in the fields with the losers and sing a song to them. Jesus, the incarnate God made flesh, doesn't associate with people like me who choose Mazda protégés He's out there associating with people who make terrible life decisions out on the side of the hills, out there, with whatever their equivalent of a Toyota Tercel is. What does that mean for us? What does it mean if you are like me, if you, if you are, like, obviously, obviously, the in, like, I want to say this as clearly as I can. If you're like, hey, I'm that guy who makes terrible life decisions, I need my thing, but if that's the place you're in, man, this nativity story is like no doubt The God of the universe associates with you. He loves you. He came to you. He's like, you think you're too far? You think your decisions have separated from me? You think the circumstances and the place you find yourself mean that you were beneath me? Couldn't be further from the truth. This is where I chose to live. This is where Jesus chose to live and grow up. We skip that whole part of Jesus' life a lot. He chose to live with, that, within that world. But what if you're like me? What if you strived for your whole life for your story to look nothing like this. I have to reach hard for this example where I felt this way, but it wasn't even true. I've worked so hard to not be that way. What is this story here to convince me of? What does this story have for me? Jesus later in his life and in his ministry tells a story of a father and two sons. And one son goes and lives recklessly and foolishly. He tells his father he'd rather be dead. And when he comes back on his knees, the father runs to him and embraces him and welcomes him. Jesus reiterates, I am here for the failures. But there's a second part of that story, and the story, part of the story that I associate with myself with, there's an older brother who sees the party being thrown for the loser, failure brother, and he's furious. What about me? I've slaved for you. I've made the right decisions. I've made the right choices. What's in it for me? Honestly, it's. Isn't strange when faced with this to have a natural reaction of, of, of defensiveness? And I would argue that defensiveness protects this little soft spot of shame. Did I read the rubric wrong? You can see I'm still in that academic space. I, did, I, did, I, did I go for the wrong things? Was I stupid to try and make good decisions? Was I a fool? So I'm defensive. And I would say, that's a space we need to be aware of. We need to be aware of what really motivates our our desire to be seen as right and righteous. Throughout the scripture, God reminds us that he is good to us, and then he offers us what he says is good. He says, I am good. I have done these great things. Here is what I say is good. And again and again, and we take those things and we say, if we do those things, we're good. We don't listen to what he's saying. Our motivation, our motivation is to believe that we can be good enough on our own. That we can separate ourselves from needing God. Flannery O'Connor in her first story famously had the story of a young man who so misinterpreted Jesus that he decided that to run from him He would be as righteous as possible because he saw that Jesus was associated with sin, so he thought, if I just don't sin, I won't need Jesus. So much of what we are trying to do is covering the shame of need, of insufficiency. We are trying to prove that we are sufficient. We are trying to prove that we are enough. We find ourselves in the position of our first parents in the garden, Adam and Eve, who longed, To be like God, to be no longer dependent on him, to be his equal. Who believed that lie, that they were not limited, that they were not the the created, that they could be equal to God. We face our Eden question, and we have to, when we look at this nativity, we need to say, what is our response to God in this? Is he our accuser, or is he our advocate? Do we respond like the older brother and say, "What? explain to me what I've done wrong so I can do it right? Or do we see in this story a God who loves his people so much that he didn't come to aim for the median person. He didn't come into this world and say like, okay, what's the net middle of what life on earth is like? He's like, no, I'm going down to the bottom. I will go into dangerous, occupied territory in poverty. I will labor with my hands. I will dignify all these things. I will raise them up by forever being associated with them. Do we say, you have gone to them and not to us? Or do we realize that positionally, we're there too. That the little rules of achievement that we make for ourselves, my little PhD that I want so I can look down at the people who don't have the letters on their end of their name, our income, the car we drive, the house we have, the schools our kids go to, that these markers that we are holding up, they're made up. We've made these up to justify ourselves. We are seeking to prove ourselves worthy. To prove that against that voice we hear in our heart that says you need, you need something you cannot provide for yourself. The hope of the Christmas story the reason we read this year in year out and we wait and we anxiously wait is that whoever wherever whatever we are is not forsaken by Christ he did not he did not come for some he came to the lowest He came in humility. He lowered himself so that he could advocate for all of us. This season, if you find yourself in a relationship with Jesus that feels like when you go to him, he is your accuser instead of your advocate, I would encourage you to remember the humility that he shows in this story. I would encourage you, if that is where your heart is this season, spend some time in the book of Hebrews where God reminds us that Christ is not, did not come to this world to prove how bad a job we did at it. Because that's how if you were Jesus, like well, I took the lowest spot on the ladder and I lived perfectly, so what are the rest of you doing? That's not the attitude that our, that our Savior has taken. Instead, now able to sympathize with even the lowest, darkest, bleakest part, our Savior now advocates for you in all things. He speaks for you. You do not need to justify yourself to Christ. It is His work on the cross, His blood, that justifies you. The nativity story can make us uncomfortable because the reality of it is That if God would step down into this world, into this sort of humiliation, that our need must be very great. But the good news is this. Yes, our need is very great, and he has met it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that who I am is not defined by the things I have, that I have worked to be. Lord, I thank you that my identity rests wholly and completely in the work of Jesus Christ. That I am not my own, that I am his, and that you love us, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we, as we spend time in this season of waiting and of Advent, Lord, that you would bring our hearts close to you, that we would not fear accusations that are not coming, but we would trust in our great Advocate, our high priest who understands and sympathizes, who has lived and died for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.